0: everybody. We're here again at the College of Intensive Care at ASM in Sydney. It's the 2017 version. They've been doing this for a while and I must say they're getting better and better and better. I'm here with Dr. Steve Warlow. Say hello Steve. Hello. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. And I've known Stephen for some time and he was involved in the ICU update yesterday and talking in the main part of the conference. So I'm just going to ask Steve some things about uh, how ICU is going here in Australia and New Zealand uh, and what the college is doing and um, really uh, just focus in on some of the really interesting stuff that has been, has been really an important part of this particular ASM. Steve, tell me, Stephen, sorry, I should say, Thank beg your pardon. Um, we've, we've known each other for a little while because we worked together many years ago, but uh, you've been involved in quite a few things. You've been done a lot more than ICU through your career. Just tell us where you came from and how you got to be where you are now as the
1: director of one of the best intensive care units in the country. It's very kind of you to say so, so thank you. Um, I came through intensive care uh, via the physician training pathway back in the day. Uh, I was first introduced to intensive care um, at Bendigo Hospital when I was a resident and um, was uh, mentored by some uh, outstanding clinicians up there and that was part of my physician training term. As I got to the uh, conclusion of my physician training and perhaps unexpectedly passed my exams, I I was perhaps rather surprised, my wife was very surprised. (laughs) I had to then determine what it was that I wanted to do with the rest of my career and looked at all the different physicianly specialties and intensive care struck me as one of the few opportunities to be a, a true generalist. Mm. And that was very attractive. And uh, that aside, I wasn't super keen on outpatient clinics. Yes, yes. No. <laughs> so, so intensive care in the end uh, was uh, an obvious choice for me. And uh, John Eddington, who I uh, uh, met first at Bendigo, uh, was a, a great friend and mentor and, uh, and supported me in that. And uh, I managed to talk uh, Jeff Guttridge, who was then director of the Austin Intensive Care Unit, into giving a, an unlikely physician trainee a six month gig in intensive care. I couldn't intubate, couldn't do oh, lines, nice. right. uh, I had uh, few tangible skills. Uh, but nonetheless, the Austin was prepared to take me on and uh, hopefully hasn't come to regret that. And <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really seem like it, does it? Hopefully not. And um, so, so that was my, my segue into intensive care. I maintained a strong link with Physician Training and uh, worked with the College of Physicians uh, both as a Director of Physician Training uh, for the Physician Training Consortium in in Victoria which uh, incorporated the Austin, the Northern, uh, Bendigo and Horsham Hospitals and really enjoyed that, did that for seven years and uh, and still miss it, it was was a great gig. Uh, It was wonderful interacting with uh, Physician Trainees, it also allowed me to poach some of the best of them to to coax them across to the light and intensive care. And many of them are now um, uh, trusted and uh, valued colleagues, which is wonderful. Excellent. Uh, And I still uh, examine for the College of Physicians, which uh, is some of the best CME uh, I do, I must say. All right. Okay. The process of being the examiner. Absolutely. Uh, It's the best peer review. People uh, from a physician background probably aware, but others might not be. With the clinical exam, the examiners do the cases cold. Ah. Yeah. And as the national exam panel member with a co-opted local examiner. The local examiner will usually know the patient, the visitor doesn't, so the visitor gets to do the case cold. And I don't mind admitting breaking out into a cold sweat when right. asked by a professor of neurology in Adelaide, for example, to uh, take on a cranial nerve examination. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a, a heart-sink moment. But um, also reassuring and validating, I think, for many, uh, I'm sure several, many of my senior colleagues would, would, would feel the same, to recognise that the skills that you that you learned very early on in your career still still linger, yeah. and uh, that you can still um, still dig deep and pull out a a complex third nerve palsy if if you're required to. Yeah, well, I mean, I completely understand that moment. It's it's always difficult,
0: and I think even just doing it not in not in a, a situation that's as intense as that is still being watched by your colleagues, being watched by your peers, because most of us we pop at the end of training when we do, and then you don't necessarily get anybody to look at you doing what is really our day to day work. But that process of actually, it's so important for us to be respected by our peers, to feel value in ourselves. It's, it's, you can really fall in a bit of a hole there. But having said that, I'm sure you did well, but the process of going through it, difficult as it might be, as you say yourself, incredibly important. Seven years of running a physician training in that area, which is it's just quite a long time. Um, the, the <clears throat> how different is physician training to the sort of ICU
1: training and stuff that you're so involved in now? So, physician training obviously is far more involved in ambulatory care. In fact, I think one of the challenges for physician training is to uh, maintain um, components of of critical care and acute care medicine. And and obviously, the the RACP is working hard to try and maintain um, engagement there because I think uh, all of us involved in intensive care would recognise that uh, I don't we think it's realistic or necessarily desirable to be the sole purveyors of acute care medicine in in, in major hospitals or, or dare I say, smaller hospitals for that matter. Uh, so I think the breadth of physician training is, is, is vast. I think anyone that's been through the RACP uh, written will, will recall learning very complex, um, uh, at times, it's seemingly fairly almost irrelevant mm-hmm. uh, complex genomics and that sort of thing. Um, no, nonetheless, I think a lot of it does stay with you and, and the relevance perhaps does become clearer later on in, in subsequent practice. Uh, so. so Physician training, I think it's challenges that it's so, so broad uh, and also they're facing similar challenges to us in intensive care is the number of trainees yeah. and the relatively few numbers of advanced training positions and the few numbers of consultant positions. Right. Yes, indeed. In some
0: ways, it feels a bit like how the UK felt back in the 90s when I was there before they made some of these similar changes, the advanced training positions and all their specialist registries. And I mean, you know, obviously there's ups and downs to both of these systems. But the College of Physicians is obviously almost ancient by comparison to the College of Intensive Care Medicine, and they must have learned a lot over the years. And with the guys that are coming through this training, what sort of proportion, let's say when you started, what sort of proportion of of the ICU trainees were coming from a physician background then versus now? Because it seems to me that the growth of the emergency college has sort of created this separate stream that seems to be taking a larger and larger part of what are now trainees within the College of Intensive Care Medicine. It's quite an interesting different dynamic.
1: So when you were starting up, were there many of your colleagues, physicians, and as in when you were training in ICU? So at the time I was doing my ICU training, it was roughly, um, I'm guessing now the college will have data, yeah. but it would have been probably 40% from anaesthesia, 40% from internal medicine, and 20% or thereabouts from emergency medicine. Mm. During the time that I was a trainee, though, it was apparent that the, the rise and rise of, physici- of uh, emergency mm. medicine trainees, uh, which was a, a very welcome and great development for the college, Uh, brought um, different perspectives, um, fantastic skills and uh, uh, when I look around now at some of my consultant colleagues, um, uh, many of them are ED uh, in background and Mm. they're they're superb clinicians. So uh, I think they've become a really dominant force and a very powerfully good force uh, for critical care training Mm. Uh, and I think we've seen a little bit of waning from um, anaesthesia and and, uh, internal medicine and uh, I think a lot of that reflects now the, the differentiation of intensive care as an independent, complex specialty with its own college. Yeah. So uh, I, I think uh, a lot of that was inevit- inevitable, um, de- desirable. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's still really worthwhile trying to maintain links with our colleagues in other disciplines. Which is exactly what I, I feel as well, so I'm not surprised that you are of that opinion.
0: The um, the physicians, the trainees now, do they actually have to spend any time in intensive care? No. That's no, totally a choice. No,
1: so it's uh, one which... Uh, an option which many people like um, a lot of them are actually still interested in doing intensive care but um, a little bit worried about the um, challenges and commitment required for, for two training programs uh so, so that, that's just a, a practical reality yeah. for people if they've got family commitments or other things in their lives that they wish to pursue then then the prolonged nature of dual training can be a little off-putting nonetheless there's still a healthy cohort of people coming through that are keen to pursue dual training and also those physician trainees who wish to pursue some of the more acute um, care specialties like respiratory or cardiology um, and, and the like, uh, are often very keen to get uh, intensive care experience. And I think there's great cross-pollination yeah. opportunities there. Well, I mean gastroenterology being the subject of the ICU mm. uh, College of a-
0: um, Intensive Care Medicine's uh, ASM right now, obviously you can see a, a, a Particularly obvious sort of a crossover there and we spent so much time working on long-term gastroenterology patients in our ICUs as you do in your ICU. Indeed. So tell us a little bit about your ICU's involvement in
1: hepatology and, and all the gastroenterology stuff that's been the focus of this ASM. Yeah, sure. So, so this ASM has got particular resonance with, with my unit and, and myself personally uh, at the austin the State Liver Transplant Service that provides um, care for complex liver patients including transplant services across Victoria and uh, Tasmania and also parts of southern New South Wales. Uh, we also uh, have a, um, a small bowel transplant program, uh, which is uh, in its early phase, but uh, we've had a number of you know complex, interesting, and uh, ultimately successful outcomes for some of those mm. patients. Uh, as a liver transplant service, we tend to see a lot of acute liver failure patients. Now, as we've just heard from Julia, most of those are paracetamol-induced and few of those actually and maybe in the fullness of time maybe none of them will ultimately require a transplantation mm. as a rescue therapy nonetheless i think we would recognize in, in critical care practice with very very um, rare diseases and very complex diseases volume high volume centers make a big difference absolutely
0: that's julia wendon who's the director at um uh, kings in london whose talks from this asm will all appear on the intensive care network guys so have a look out for those and um, Interestingly, also, one of the other talkers we've had is the, the uh, very entertaining uh, Swedish surgical, I suppose you'd have to call him master, I mean, with the amount of experience that he's had, Lars Lundell, and he's talking about that concept of centralization as well. He was talking about it in the context of esophagectomies, which I always struggle with that word, <laughs> esophagectomies. Uh, now Sweden's a country of about 10 million people. Australia is, what, 20, 25? Uh, and we have the states, because we're really a gathering a country. So I'm just thinking, how can we... Is it possible for us to centralise, to have the same sort of numbers so that you would have these hyper-specialised surgical ICU um, kind of crossover units within our Australia-New Zealand sort of paradigm? You've already mentioned that your unit is covering three states, or two and a half states. But realistically, with the numbers that we've got, the population of this country and the prevalence of some of these diseases and, and you know the complexity of the surgery and ICU combinations... Will we be able to create something like that, or do you see that there's a lot of political sort of barriers? I mean, uh, it's, we're going to have a situation where like everybody from Melbourne has to go to Sydney for a particular type of oesophagectomy, and it would be quite difficult to organise.
1: I, I think for, for major centres, inevitably, it's already headed in that direction. So so for the for the larger, more popular states, uh, then um, high-volume centres are gradually evolving. And for, for things like and oesophagectomy uh, and those complex surgeries that have high morbidity, high risk of mortality, and really require complex multidisciplinary care. Uh, I think things are inevitably, and, and very um, desirably shifting in that direction. Mm. Uh, I think we do have the, the old tyranny of distance challenge. Mm. That it's all very well for me to say that that's a great option for Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, Perth, and Brisbane, for example, mm. uh, and dare Auckland. I'm sure I'm um, hesitant to speak for my New Zealand colleagues, but I imagine it would be similar for them. Yeah. Uh, Sweden is a smaller geographic country. They might have some um, distance uh, issues as well. But I I think um, it is a challenge for regional parts of uh, Australia and New Zealand to have access to high-quality care. And that's where I think things like retrieval services and patient transport infrastructure, which we, I think, arguably do rather well in this part of the world, Mm. comes to the fore. So that uh, you don't have to live in a city that provides um, high-volume Centres for complex surgery, uh, you can actually receive high quality care through um, patient transport services. And
0: Stephen and I worked together for uh, a RVS where I met you first, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, the, the Victorian Transport Service, which is m- more ICU-ish than many transport services around this country, and that was a lot of fun. Now, the so w- what are you talking about now? For the because you've done your ICU update and y- yesterday, and you uh, like Charlie Cork and Steve Philpot were were teaching consultants about communication skills, stuff that they would usually be teaching other people. How do you feel all that went? Was it uh, was it Charlie and Steve that really sort of think this is the thing we want to do is the, the ICU update? Because of course ICU updates in the past have been often quite a bit nuts and bolt things and I, I, I don't like to use the word fluffy but I don't use it in a difficult, in a bad way. I just think that um, you had all these guys in, a bunch of them with more experience than you and me put together and, um, the,
1: uh, and you were teaching them communication. How did it go? So, I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'd be interested to see what the feedback from the participants is because uh, they're the final determinants of, mm. of, of how it went. Um, I made a, a key disclaimer at the start of, uh, of each session that I took which was along the lines that I've, we've got a room full of experts here. Mm. I do not hold myself out as the, uh, the, the font of wisdom on how to conduct complex communication mm. and, and, um, and, and family meetings or, or, or breaking bad news and the like. I think people that come to intensive care practice are inherently well attuned to doing those sort of things well, they've got uh, skills, and uh, I think our training's pretty good mm. uh, uh, through uh, the, the college program, and also uh, our own interaction with senior colleagues and mentors, we do come uh, with, with, and develop good skills. But I don't think it's sticking a specialty if you couldn't do those things yeah. rather well. So its I don't mind admitting, as the facilitator, it's a little daunting to look around the room and, and see exactly as you've described. You've got a room full of people who are actually um, high-flyers in the regard. Nonetheless, I, um, I'm grateful for the, um, the gracious um, uh, understanding of my colleagues who really committed very, very well and, and contributed. These sessions only work when people actively participate and it's a very dynamic process. We use simulated patients to, to have the discussions and it requires people to suspend disbelief. Yeah. And to everyone's credit and particular thanks to the people that, that were prepared to put themselves in the hot seat, uh, it feels really real. Once people are a minute into it, and um, uh, we were particularly talking about making um, treatment recommendations without yeah. being paternalistic or undermining autonomy, and that's a difficult balance. I think uh, in our region, we value patient autonomy very highly, and, and rightly so. Nonetheless, I think we'd all recognise that patients won't necessarily make good decisions, or the families more often make good decisions, without information and, dare I say, guidance. Yes, I mean, it's um, tricky, isn't it? You're on a tightrope, really.
0: Because, yeah. I mean, you can be non-paternalistic and lose non-paternalistic language and so on and so on, but potentially still deliver a paternalistic guidance. It's, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, we are the experts uh, as the medics and then in ICU in particular about this sort of stuff, but it's a really big deal we're talking about, whether we withdrawing treatment, you know, refusing treatment, not admitting to ICU. These are the subjects, and one of them was about the difficult pay, the difficult colleague and so on. But it's our reality. Maybe it's practice that makes us pretty good at this and so on, but... Um, I mean, day in, day out, you're having these conversations, right? Yeah. So it's not as...
1: And look, I I think patients and families expect this to offer guidance. Mm. I mean, you don't go to your mechanic and uh, expect them to say it's totally up to you whether I place your brake pads. They're they're due for it, but you're cool. You you want a professional opinion to guide your decision-making. And I I think that analogy maybe breaks down in so many ways. But Mm. I I think um, if we expect that sort of... um, decision-making support from our mechanic, I, I think it's reasonable to imagine that patients and families would anticipate receiving some sort of professional guidance from yeah, us. And we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be shy about that. No. Um, but we do have to do it in a, basically an appropriate fashion for how
0: things have changed, because things have changed a lot since the, some of our esteemed colleagues started training. I mean, there's so much has changed around them. I mean, I was on the bus this morning, nobody, nobody was talking to anybody, it was quite strange, and uh, there was just iPhone stuff, and it must be quite, it must be an amazing change for someone like, say, Charlie, who's yeah. still got many years to go, really, but at the same time has started in the UK and has gone, what is it, 20, 30 yeah, years of ICU, before basically anybody really understood it existed, so. Look, it's a, it's a fascinating time, I won't keep it too long, I mm. wanted to give me a wee plug, your talk tomorrow is called, um, my talk tomorrow, let me think of the that's, 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 that's subject, the the subject is, is life worth living? It depends on the liver. Right. And you, so that, again, everybody else, you'll be able to find that on Intensive Care Network as a podcast because we're recording all of this sort of stuff and the college has been really good about sharing it. And I think that's a really, really encouraging uh, thing that the college is trying to do, getting it a little bit more modern. Um, and uh, so all, all of the groovy content will be out there. But thanks very much for coming and spending a little bit of time with me today. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, no worries. Cheers. Take care. Thanks so much to Stephen Marlowe for coming along and talking to the podcast today. Thanks also to Bobby Womack for recording the fantastic tune Communication from the 1971 eponymous album. Seem just perfect for this chat that we had today. If you like this stuff, please think about pres- subscribing on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also find us on SoundCloud, where there's various different playlists which break it down into the different specialties and different areas of interests. If you have any ideas about what we might talk about in the podcast, or if you'd like to come on and talk yourself, get in touch. My name's Doug Lynch, you can find me on Twitter with my moniker at the top end. That's T-H-E-T-O-P-E-N-D. Thanks for listening.